Okay, so we're in a series called The Core Values of Solid Rock. And whenever we started the church five years ago, I preached this series. And when someone becomes a member of our church, we ask them to listen to these sermons, these four sermons, and agree to apply them to their life if I'm going to be their pastor. And so I'm re-preaching them from five years ago with a little different twist on them. And as you can see, our core values up here in the banners, it keeps our church growing. It keeps our church very healthy. And uh, last week we talked about we give. And before we get into today's subject, I'd love to give you a little bit of a nugget of wisdom on church membership and churches and stuff like that. So here's my nugget of wisdom to you today. Romans chapter 12, and you'll see it in your notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, plus every New Testament book tells us the best way to gauge or to test how much you love Jesus is not in how much you pray. It is not in how much you read the Bible. Just so you know, you reading the Bible doesn't really bless God. It blesses you. He already knows what's in the Bible, just in case. You know, I didn't know. He already knows what's in there. What really blesses God, what really shows him that you love him, is how well you serve the local church. If you really want to test, don't test somebody by how much they say they love Jesus. Because people can tell you all day that long they love you. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is an action. Love gives. God didn't say, hey, I love you all just so you know I love you. It says he loved you so much that he gave the only thing he had one of in the universe. So love is an action. And the way you want to know how much you love Jesus is how much you love the church. Um, all through the New Testament, there's two phrases. You can write them down. The bride of Christ and the body of Christ. Those are the two phrases used all through the New Testament to describe the local church, the body of Jesus Christ, the bride of Jesus Christ. So imagine going up to God and saying, God, I love your face. Your head is so beautiful. Oh, your eyes, they're dreaming. Oh, your mouth, you just say the most beautiful things. But your body, oh, your body's hideous. I don't like your body. I don't ever want to see your body. Maybe on Easter and Christmas. Other than that, I, your body offends me. Your body's not perfect. I don't, like, I don't like your body. I don't love you. But I love your head. Your head's glorious. That's what it's like for people who don't have a passion for the local church. Or it's the bride of Christ. Imagine saying, God, I love you, but your wife, ugh, I don't want to do anything for your wife. And God says, no, if you love me, you'll serve my wife. No, I love you, but I'm not going to take care of her. I don't like her. She offends me. I, I saw her once last year, didn't like her. I saw her again the year before. No. That's, again, what it's like for people that don't have a passion for the local church. Think about this. Most of the New Testament was not written to Christians. It was written to members of churches. Very funny. When you read the whole book of Ephesians, remember, it's written to the church of Ephesus. Corinthians, the church of Corinth, even Timothy. All through Timothy when it talks about church leadership and deacons and elders. In other words, you can't even apply most of the New Testament to your life, unless you're a member of a church, you can't apply it by just being a Christian that attends church. Christians attend church. Disciples serve the church. And the word Christian is not in the Bible. Just so you know, it's not in any of the original language. The word Christian came about five or six hundred years ago. You know what it calls us? It calls us disciples. And America has Americanized Christians or disciples to people that just show up on Sunday, feel good, and live like the devil from Monday to Saturday. But we're not called to do that. We're called to be disciples. Christians attend church. Disciples serve and love the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. Um, the word brothers and sisters is all through the New Testament. 
Um, it's an intimate word. It doesn't say cousins. It doesn't say nephews. It's brothers and sisters. So when it talks about learning how to forgive your brother or when it talks about serving your sister, it's not talking about people in Africa. It's not talking about people in China. It's talking about your family in your church. If you can't forgive the people in this room, how are you going to be able to forgive the people that you work with that don't serve God? If you can't serve your sisters in Christ here, how are you going to serve the atheist that you don't like down the street or your neighbor that you don't get along with? If we can't do it here, we can't do it out there. So that's your nugget of wisdom for the church. Uh, today in the core value, we're going to talk about this. We serve. We serve. Now, have you ever had the thought that, you know what, I know I'm saved and, um, you know, I know Jesus is my Lord, but I just battle if I'm really going to heaven or not. You know, I go to bed at night and I have this fear sometimes if, if, I, if I don't wake up in, on earth, if my heart stops beating, am I really 100% going to heaven? And then you come to church and you see these people and they're, they're out there serving communion and they're singing on the worship team and they're teaching. And you think, man, they're so confident. They're so confident that they're going to heaven. Have you ever had that thought? Okay, let me tell you how to get rid of that thought forever. 1 Timothy 3.13, those who serve in church well will gain great confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. If you want to be more confident in your faith, if you want to be more confident in the healing power of God, if you want to be more confident in the financial uh, prosperity of God, if you want to be more confident in the gift God's given you, if you want to be more confident in Jesus, here's all you got to do. Serve Jesus. Serve Jesus. Uh, it doesn't matter how, how much sin you have in your life. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter um, what your talents or gifts are. Every person in here and of every age, of every background, can easily serve Jesus by serving the church in some way. Okay, so I have three points for you today. And um, I hope you're excited. Are you excited? Say, oh yeah. oh, yeah. Didn't sound like it, but that's okay. Point number one is this. We serve with our time. We serve with our time. And again, we're going to the New Testament to talk about serving in church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, tells us what my job description is, and it tells us what your job description is, okay, as disciples of Jesus. It says, Christ himself, and this is when Jesus ascended into heaven, in order to continue his vision on planet earth, he gave certain gifts. Now, you're going to read where he actually gave these gifts to the church. So if you're not part of a church, you can't even receive these gifts or become what you're supposed to be. So watch this. He gave some as apostles. Now, I want to tell you what an apostle is because you're going to need to know this for the end of the sermon. An apostle is someone who's already very successful in one of the other gifts there and for several years. And now they're able to train other of the fourfold. They're able to train the pastor and train a teacher and train the banjo prophet. So an apostle is way up there. Remember that for the end of the sermon, okay? It says some are prophets. We have a New Testament prophet that comes to our church, and that is someone who encourages you specifically in a certain area to either keep going the direction you're going or turn into a different direction. Evangelists like uh, Billy Graham, Joel Osteen, these are people who have the gift of getting someone to become a believer. They go from the seed to the being born again. Now, uh, a baby grows in the womb, correct, from the seed until it's being born. That's like in the evangelist's job. After that, after the person gives their life to Jesus and they're born again, then they send them to a local church to be trained. But the evangelist just gets them from seed to becoming a, 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 a safe person, from seed to hearing it until they actually receive it. And then they go to the pastors and the teachers. And watch this. Here's the responsibility to fully equip the saints. Now, the saints, that's 
most of you. And it says, so they would learn to, here's your job, serve the body of Christ, the church, so each one would become a mature believer. Here's my question. How will you ever become a mature believer if you're not part of a church? How will you ever fulfill your destiny if you're not learning to serve the church? How will you ever? You're wasting time on planet Earth building your kingdom and worrying about your problems and dealing with all the things that have to do with you. You're wasting time when you are not part of a local church and serving that church. We are called. This is part of our destiny. And there's three reasons why people do not do this. Here's the three reasons for your notes. Self-centeredness, selfishness, and self-pity. What is the root of those three words? Say it loud. Self. Okay, well, it's just not my personality to be part of a church. So the personality God gave you, that is your excuse for disobeying him? Actually, you're talking, you're, you're, every excuse you have has to do with you. Well, I've been through so much in that other church and, the, and all these things in the past. Whoa, whoa, whoa that's self-pity. If you want to be healed, get your mind off of yourself and get it on Jesus. If you want things to change in your life, if you're here and you're depressed, it's because you're thinking about your own problems. If you're here and you're upset and you're worried and you're concerned about all these things, you're thinking about you. If you want healing in your life, if you want God to do what he wants to do and fulfill your debt, you've got to get your mind off of yourself and get it on serving Jesus. It's very important you understand that. So in Luke chapter 10, for your notes, Jesus told his disciples, there's two of the greatest things you're ever going to learn. Love God and love people. He said that in Luke 10. He said, love God and love your neighbor. And then the 12 stooges, I mean the 12 disciples, said this. They said, well, what people are we supposed to love? I know you said to love you, and I know you said to love your neighbor. But, like, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Is it the people that look just like me? The ones that believe? Who is it? How do I love? How do I love you and love people? So in response to that, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Does everybody know the story of the Good Samaritan? Okay, I'm going to tell you that parable but I'm going to intertwine it with a true story that happened back in 1960, okay? I'm intertwining the two, the parable Jesus told and a true story. Back in 1960 in Alabama at 11.30 at night, this African-American woman was uh, driving down the road and it was just in the middle of a horrible storm, tons of rain, and she hit something with her car and one of her tires busted. It just it completely went flat. So she pulls off on the side of the road and she doesn't know what to do. It's 1130 at night. She's in Alabama and it's raining terribly. And so she gets out of her car and tries to wave somebody down. OK, that's the true story. Jesus said in the parable not to worry because the first person that my father sent was the bishop of the Catholic Church. And when he saw the lady, not only did he not stop, but the Bible says he actually went on the other side of the road and kept going. Maybe he thought she was from a different religion. Maybe he didn't like the color of her skin. I don't know. For whatever reason, he didn't stop. Jesus said not to fear because the next guy I sent, it was the deacon of his church. He did the exact same thing, though. He saw the woman. He went on the other side of the road and kept going. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is very funny because the first two examples that Jesus used of somebody that did not love God and love people were religious people. They were people that went to church. That's the first two examples Jesus used. People who attended church every single Sunday. That tells me just because I attend church does not mean that I serve Jesus. Just because I'm here today doesn't mean I'm serving God at all. So <clears throat> later on, uh, a white young man drove by and he saw the woman there. And this was unheard of in the 60s in Alabama. 
But he pulled on the side of the road and he put the African-American woman in his car. He got out and he took her tire off. It's 1130 at night, pouring down rain. He takes her into town, spends three hours trying to find another tire that will fit her car. He finally gets one, drives her back to her car, is still pouring down rain. He gets out, he changes her tire, puts her in her car, and she thanks him. She says, I want to pay you. She tries to give him money. He says, I don't want any of your money. She said, at least let me get your address so I can write you a thank you letter. And he reluctantly agrees to do that. Jesus said in Luke 10, 36, which of these three do you think proved to love? Now go and do the same thing. A few days went by and the young man gets a knock on his front door and much to his surprise, they are delivering a large color television to his house with a note attached to it that said this. Thank you so much for your service the other night. Because of you, I was able to make it to my dying husband's bedside just before he passed away. Thank you so much for generously serving others. Signed, Mrs. Nat King Cole. Rick Warren said the sign of a mature believer is when they take off their bib and they put on an apron. Because children wear bibs and they're always looking for somebody else to meet their needs and serve them. But a disciple of Jesus Christ is always wearing an apron, ready to serve other people. Here's my question. What do you wear when you come in this building? What do you have on? Are you have on a bib? You want us to encourage you, us to lead you in worship, us to pray for you, us to teach your children, us to pay the electric bill for you. Or do you come here with an apron looking at how you can bless somebody else? Point number two is this. We serve for treasure. You'd think I'd say we serve with our treasure, but that was the core value we give. We serve for treasure. In other words, every time you serve Jesus in this family, you gain something else in heaven. Matthew 6, 19, do not store up riches for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy. Instead, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. I know what you're thinking. Some of you that are really, really religious are thinking we shouldn't be serving just to get something in return. Okay, listen, if you have a problem with that, talk to Jesus because he wrote this and he has a lot of incentives for us to serve other people. So if you ever have the thought, okay, I got saved by the blood of Jesus, not me. It's all Jesus. It's all him. That's why I'm going to heaven. It's all the grace of God. Then why does it matter how I live on earth? I mean, if I'm already saved and going to heaven, why can't I just, you know, sleep with whoever I want to and, and do whatever I want to do? And why do I even have to come to church? What's the point? I'm already saved. I'm going to heaven. Okay, here's why. Your judgment of faith, heaven or hell, is not determined after you die. It's determined on earth. So whether you're going to heaven or hell when you die, you get to choose that now. But after you die, if you're a believer and you've chosen Jesus on earth, then everything you did on earth that was the right thing can actually get rewards in heaven. It's the second judgment for believers called the judgment seat of Christ. Let me read about it. Second Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear. This is talking to the church, by the way, before the judgment seat of Christ. Here we go. So each one, that's you and me may receive his pay according to what he has done in his bodily life, considering his purpose and everybody in here say motive. Oh, that's a horrible word. I do not like that word. And I'll tell you why I'm saying, oh, and what he has given his time and abilities to accomplishing. 
Your obedience on earth determines what heaven is like for you. Have you ever thought about how do, who decides what size my house is? Do I, do, can I just get to heaven and say, you know what? I've been in this house for the first 5,000 years. I'd like to switch it over here. Have you ever thought about what your position is in heaven? Well, I want to be in charge of these people or I want to go teach them. What am I going to get to do in heaven? That's all determined by how you live your life on earth. And you see the word motive? That means whatever you did, if you did it with the wrong motive, you get no reward in heaven. If you sing the solo for people to focus on you and not, you don't get any reward. If you taught that class because you wanted people to see how smart you are, no reward in heaven. I remember I had a lady one time years ago, she told me, I'm not going to sing at your church if I can't sing on a microphone. I said, well, don't let the doorknob hit you where the good Lord split you. And she left. This is why. Because motive, I didn't say that. Uh, maybe I did. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Motive is everything. It's everything. Let me say this. So if your job here is to um, serve communion, okay? If you do it with faithfulness and excellence, listen, you could have a greater reward in heaven than the pastor who has 10,000 members in his church but does it for the fame and fortune. Because the motive's not right. It's all about motives and what you're giving your time and abilities to accomplish. If you want to know what your motives really are, how do you act when you don't get your way? How do you act whenever you don't get to park in the space you wanted to park in close to the door? How, uh, no. how do you, <laughs> I'm not going to look at anybody's face right now because I don't know who does it. Um, how, do you, how do you respond when we don't sing the song you wanted to sing? How do we respond when you don't get your way shows where your heart really is when you're serving Jesus? Matthew, uh, our eternal destiny, not destination, is based on how well we serve the local church. Not your destiny. Your, de your destination is determined right now if you choose Jesus or not. But your destiny, what you get in heaven for all of eternity. You don't get to, whatever you get that first day, it's eternal. It's forever. The position you have, forever. The house you're at, the location of your house, forever. The amount of treasure, and evidently we're going to need some type of treasure in heaven. The amount that you have the day you arrive is never going to increase or decrease. You get that forever. Uh, Matthew 25, 23. The kingdom of God is like this. Well done, my excellent bishop overseer. Is that what it says? No. Well done, my excellent Prophet to 10,000 people. Is that what it says? No. Well done, my excellent evangelist that led millions to Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? No. Well done, my excellent servant. Because you have been faithful with little, I will make you governor. This is heaven. Over 10 cities. Do you know we're going to have to have people be in charge of different galaxies in heaven? Different locations, different cities. God's looking for people, not that did amazingly great, huge things, but did little things with faithfulness and excellence with the right motive. Faithfulness means that we can count on you. You do what you say you're going to do. Excellence means you're doing it as if you're making a million dollars for doing it. Faithfulness and excellence. That means if your job is to clean up the church after church, you might have a greater reward in heaven, again, than the person who led 100,000 people to Jesus, but did it because they were showing off the whole time. It's all about motive. Um, let's see, what are you doing that will last for all of eternity? Because some things we're doing right now won't even last till tomorrow. What are you actually doing in your life? What have you done in the past week that will actually last for all of eternity? 
Uh, I've had people that have said to me, um, when it comes to heaven, I just want to get there. I don't care what I get. I don't care what house I have. As long as I make it there, I'm good. And if you've ever had that thought, I'm going to give you an analogy, okay? This is not a good analogy. It's the best one I could come up with, but it is not even close to being accurate. Not even close, but again, the best I can come up with, okay? Imagine that you go to somebody in Africa and they're in a tribe where uh, there's no running water, no electricity, they're living in tents and huts outside, uh, they're practically starving to death, and you go to this guy and say, listen, I'm going to bring you to America. I'll pay all the expenses, but here's the condition. You have to work for me 60 hours a week for minimum wage. You have to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You have to live in a one-bedroom studio apartment. And you have to ride a bicycle everywhere you go, forever. <laughs> Would that African tribe member with no running water electricity still be very excited to come to America? Yes! But after he's in that one bedroom and after he's eaten that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and after he's been riding his bike for about five or 6,000 centuries, don't you think at some point he'd think, man, I wish they had told me I could have had a car. I wish they had told me I could have only worked 40 hours a week. I wish they had told me I could have eaten lobster and filet mignon. And I wish they had told me I could have had a bigger house and owned my own company. But they told me this. Okay, that's not a good analogy because I'm comparing Africa to America. The truth is we're talking about earth versus heaven. Heaven is 10 billion times greater than earth. And it's not just until, you know, the next 30, 40, 50 years until you, you die on earth. It's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So whatever you get, as soon as you arrive to heaven, that's what you have for all of eternity. Man, you should be thanking this church for asking you to serve. Because we are, you think your retirement was good? Your retirement is just going to last you 20, 30 more years. We're talking about retirement for eternity. We're setting you up for a big bank account whenever you get to heaven, being governor over 10 cities. Um, this preacher had a dream one night that an angel appeared to him and allowed him to see uh, what hell looked like and what heaven looked like. He was so excited, and so the angel takes him down this hallway, and the first door has the word hell on it. So he decides, okay, I'm going to look in hell first, and he opens up the door. It was very unusual what he saw in hell. He saw these gigantic banqueting tables all over hell and in the center of all the tables was this delicious food i mean sushi and and lobster and steak and and hamburger and k and w and i'm already getting hungry and wish i'd stop preaching and leave and so all this food was in the middle of these big banqueting tables but all the people in hell were screaming in pain and starvation because they all had these long wooden spoons strapped to both of their arms from their bicep down to their wrist past their hand and it made it easy for them to reach the food in the middle of the tables but made it impossible for them to bend their arms and feed themselves and so they were all screaming in starving pain it was more than the preacher could bear so he slammed the door to hell and he runs over across the hallway to where it says heaven when he opened up the door much to his surprise he saw a very similar view there was these huge banqueting tables all in heaven it had the most delicious food in the center of every table and just like in hell every person in heaven had these long wooden spoons strapped to both of their arms from their bicep down to their wrist past their hands 
which made it easy to reach the food in the middle of the table, but impossible for them to bend their arms and feed themselves. Only the screaming pain in hell was replaced with joy and laughter in heaven. For everybody in heaven simply celebrated the privilege to feed one another with the same long spoons. Who are you feeding? If you are in pain today, if you're discouraged, there's a good chance you're only focused on you. There's a good chance you're only focused on your, listen, the problems you're facing right now, I'll tell you the truth, they're probably not gonna get fixed by tomorrow no matter what you do. You may as well get your mind off yourself and serve somebody else. So point number three is this. We serve not for a title. Um, one of the things that's caused me the most grief in, in, in pastoring is that I come across people who are incredibly talented and gifted, and because of that level of talent or whatever it is, they desperately want a position or a title. And they don't realize that biblically, the greatest position in the kingdom of heaven on earth and in heaven is that of a servant. It says in first Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. These are some of the greatest men in the Bible. James 1, 1, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1, 1, Peter, a servant. And then he lists apostle. Servant came first and apostle of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. You would think, remember I told you at the beginning of the service what an apostle does. They train pastors and advance and send them out. You'd think that'd be the greatest position. It's not. He said, my calling is an apostle. My title is an apostle. But my job is to serve the body of Christ. That's what I'm supposed to do, regardless of my title. And we have a lot of positions here. Worship leader and teacher and prayer partner and all this. And elder and deacon. But listen, our job is to serve. Our job is to do what's best for this church. Even me, my title is a pastor. Listen, my job is to be the biggest servant. If this, if this was John Paul's church, we would do things differently. If this was John Paul's church... We would sing Christian songs from the 90s every Sunday. Amy Grant, Clint Brown, oh my goodness, that's my go-to music. But we don't do that. You know why? I'm doing what's best for the church. And if you're ever part of a church and think, I don't really like that, I don't like that, you need to look and see if someone's being blessed by the thing you don't like. Because I love God enough, where, and I'm close enough, I don't have to sing the song I want to sing to feel close to God. But when I see that that new song blesses somebody else or the next generation or calls more people to Him, it blesses me if it blesses them. I am more blessed by what blesses you than what blesses me. Elders in our church is a very top position, but their job is to be the biggest servants. If you've ever been part of a church where the elders dictated the vision to the pastor, that was not a New Testament church. That is not in the Bible. It was, it was a good organization you were part of, but that's not a church. In the Bible, the apostle trains and sends out the pastor. God gives the pastor the vision, and the elders, which is the top position, their responsibility is not to say yes or no. Their responsibility is to say, okay, if that's what God wants, we're going to figure out every avenue we can to get that to happen in our church. That's their job. And yes, they can deal with sin and wrong things, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the vision of the church. Man, we got to learn how to be, we got to learn how to serve the vision, the people. It's not about us. Nowhere, when Jesus talked about serving him, he never said, um, listen, I want you to serve me. He always said, if you love me, you'll serve people. It's all about people. Um, in 2 Kings 3.11, now Elijah, Elijah is, in my opinion, one of the greatest prophets in the entire Bible. 
But Elisha did twice as many miracles. Elisha had a double anointing, okay? His position, his title, was one of the greatest prophets ever. You know what his job was? He brought water to Elijah. That was his job. He brought water to the pastor before church. He, he brought water into the building. That was his response. When somebody needed water, he got it. He started as the water boy. He ended up with a double anointing in his life. Isn't that, and people say, well, I'm just going to pray about what area I should serve it. Why don't you just do what we need you to do? And then all that will come later. Well, I don't know if I'm called to bring the water in. Oh, I'm calling you right now. You're called. Bring the water in. Well, God's called me to lead songs and sing. Well, you can sing all the way from the kitchen over here when you bring my water. <laughs> we need you to take out the trash. Oh, God's called me to be a teacher. Then why don't you teach three other people to help you take out the trash? Because if you can do that, then you might be a good teacher. <laughs> do what we need. And then the calling and the position and all that will come later. Um, my grandfather, he, he was a multi, multi-millionaire. And he's in heaven now. But he... Um, he lived like he, you know, worked, got paid minimum wage because he wore the same outfit every day. You know, they lived in the same house all their life. And so he took all his money and he gave it to churches every year. Missions work. He built buildings for churches. I mean, he was all about the church and he was always so grateful. Um, what God did. In fact, whenever I didn't say this in the first service, but whenever he got Alzheimer's really bad, um, he went to my dad and he said, son, I need to ask you a favor. And my dad said, what is it? And he said, I know that you like to travel around the world. He said, if you ever travel around the world and you find Jesus, if you ever come across Jesus, please tell him how grateful me and your mother are for everything he's done for us. And uh, my grandfather, he had millions of dollars. He was the most influential person in every church that he was ever a part of because his personality and people loved him. So every church he was at, the pastors and the, the, the elders, they would always ask him, you need to be one of the elders, and we want you to lead this group, and we want you to be part of this, and we, you're, you're, everyone loves you, you're the biggest giver in the church, you know, we need you. My grandfather said, no, that's not what I'm called to do. My grandfather, every church, here's the two things he did. He cut the grass and he unclogged the toilets. That was his job. He never wanted anyone else to get dirty. He wanted to do it for him. If there was ever a problem with the building, he'd let everybody, you better call me. You better call me. I'll take care of it. I'll be right there. He'd be so proud of the plants that he put outside in front of the church and the flowers every season. He'd make sure everything was edged just right. If there was ever a problem in here, he'd come, he'd clean the bathrooms. If it was 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd be there at the church. Wherever church he was at, he realized he was called to be a servant above everything else. In Mark 9... Jesus was walking on the road with his 12 stooges, and I'll tell you why I call them that. They were arguing in verse 34 about who was the greatest. Well, you know, I led 25 people to the Lord this past month. Well, I have a church of 500 people. Well, in my church, we're doing this new thing here. Who's the greatest here? So Jesus heard them whispering, and it says he looked at them and said, Whoever wants to be first must place himself last and be servant of God. All. Okay, listen. Just a few minutes later, they're walking again. Just a little. It's like they don't. It's like there's one ear and right out the other ear. In chapter 10 of Mark, it says, verse 35. Then James and John said to him, hey, teacher, listen, we've, we've already decided who's the best. Okay. Um, we, we, we took a poll and we asked, you know, how, 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 how James has been with you for just a little bit. You know, Thomas, he's always doubting everything you say. And Peter always wants to be. So we decided me and John, we're the best. So listen, whenever you get into your kingdom. 
We want you to give us the best positions. We want you to put one of us on your left and one of us on your right. And in verse 43, Jesus said this again, if you want to be great, you must be servant of all. Watch this for even the most powerful being in the universe with the highest position anyone could ever have. He came here not to be served, but he came here to serve. I'm surprised Jesus didn't shoot lasers out of his eyes when he said that to the disciples. And so if you ever thought, if I ever asked you at your workplace, wherever you work, if I said, who's the greatest at your workplace? You know who you'd respond with? You would not respond with who has the highest position. You'd respond with the person that always has the heart to serve everybody else at that workplace. Isn't that true? Think about wherever you've worked at. Who's the greatest? Who, if this person loses their job, we don't know what we're going to do. It's not the CEO most of the time. It's the one that has the biggest heart to serve with faithfulness and excellence. Same thing in your home. The people you live with. If I said, who's the greatest in your home? Who's the one where if this person gets sick, the whole home shuts down? You know who you're going to list? You're going to list the biggest servant in the house. Usually the mom, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I had to throw that in there at some point. Okay. So, same night. They're, they just got done walking. Same night. Jesus already told them twice. Twice. Same night. They're going to a Jewish home to eat dinner. And custom was when you walk in the home that the host would immediately greet everybody. And the lowliest of the lowliest of the lowliest servant in the home would run over to all the feet of the guests and begin taking off their sandals and washing their feet so they can come into the house. Remember Israel, 2,000 years ago, you know, there's, there's animal feces all over the place. There's no concrete or roads like that. It's dirt, mud. It's disgusting. They walk into the house and listen real close. There's no servant. And this blows my stinking mind. No servant and not one disciple, not one thought you know what? There's nobody here to pass out bulletins, so I'm going to do it. There's nobody here to teach the kids, so I'm going to step it up. There's nobody here to take care of this, so what? You know what? I'm going to do it. Not one. They were all thinking, who can we get to volunteer to do this for us? You know how many people will come to church and say, well, Pastor, how come you don't do this in church? And I'm thinking, I'm mind, how come you don't do it in church? You're going to put more weight on me? I already serve you enough. If you got an idea, let's hear it. We'd love for you to volunteer to do it. Not one servant. And so Jesus himself in John 13, 4, pours some water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel. Jesus gets the bowl himself and starts doing it. It amazes me. There's a, a very weird scripture in the middle of this story that for years I didn't know why it was there. And I finally asked God because... I figured he, he would know. And so then he told me, I'll tell you what it does. So it's a weird scripture in verse 11, just out of the blue. It says, Jesus already knew who was going to betray. Why does it say that? We're talking about washing feet and we're doing in the middle of this story. It's basically telling us that Jesus is washing the feet of the person who he knew was going to betray. You know what that tells me? That tells me when I serve you, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with my heart. I don't serve you because we're from the same political party. I don't serve you because we agree on everything in the Bible. I don't serve you because you've done so much. No, 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 no. I serve you because you're part of this family. If you're in this, if you're part of this family, I'm going to lay down my life for you because that's regardless of how much money you give or don't give. Regardless of how much sin is in your life or how clean your life is, or how perfect you are. My job is to serve you. Jesus did not say I'm serving all the disciples that are not going to betray me. 
He said, I'm serving every one of them that's in my family. In verse 12, after Jesus washed their feet, this is the, this is the drop the mic moment, okay? Get ready, this is big. After he washed their feet, he said, do you understand what I just did for you? I, your Lord, have washed your feet. You ready? It's big, it's huge, it's huge. He didn't say, I washed your feet, now you wash my feet. He didn't say, I took care of you and blessed you. Now you, I need you to bless me. He said, I washed your entire life, past, present, and future with my blood. So I'm asking you to do this. Serve people. Don't ever think that you're serving Jesus by, yeah, there's this weird discipleship movement. I just go out and just do what Jesus tells. I just listen to the Lord and follow. No, no, no. If you hear anything Jesus says, it's going to be about people. I washed your feet, so now here's what I need you to do. Wash the feet of people around you. That blows my mind. I wonder if at this point, if any disciple was actually thinking still, I wonder who's the greatest. I wonder which one's going to have the top position in heaven. In verse 17, Jesus said, now that you know this, you'll be so happy if you put it into practice. Let me ask you, have you ever known a selfish person that's happy ever? I know people that have millions of dollars. They're unhappy. I know people that have a beautiful, healthy family. They're unhappy. I know people that are CEOs of businesses and people just serve them all through the day. And they're so unhappy. You know why? Because they're so focused on them selves. I want to close this story and I'll let you go. True story. <clears throat> Years ago, these two baby twins were born prematurely. And it was very evident that the little girl was a little girl, a little boy. Evident the little girl had a heart condition and she was going to die within a few days. And <clears throat> the hospital's policy was to put the babies in separate incubators. That's just what they did. When they found out the little girl was, was close to death, the mom began to cry uncontrollably. And she was begging the hospital. She said, listen, my babies, they were in my womb together for nine months. Please just let them be together the last few moments of her life. The hospital wouldn't do it. Finally, one of the nurses got involved. And it was a big ordeal. And towards the very end, the nurse finally got it to where they would allow the babies to be in the same incubator together. When they put the little brother and sister together in the same incubator, for, for some reason, unexplainably, we don't know how it happened. All of a sudden, within a few minutes, the little boy, little brother, put his arm around his little baby sister. Within a few hours, her heart began to heal. There was no medical explanation. Her blood pressure went to normal. Her temperature got to normal. Within a few days, they were both happy, healthy, and whole and were able to go home. There's actually a picture of these twins. It's a famous picture called the rescuing hug. And here's a picture of it there. I said that to you because when God wants to encourage somebody, he uses your mouth. When he wants to give to somebody, he uses your money. And when he wants to hug somebody, he uses your arms. Yeah. I am begging you and pleading with you today. Get your mind off of yourself and serve Jesus by serving the body and the bride of Christ. Amen. Amen.
Thank you.